Ahe Mysteries, investigated by Patrick Muirhead, inspired by real events on a remote tropical island, but all characters and action depicted are imaginary. Time of Innocence, Episode 8. Korgat Estate is one of the few places in Mahe where an outsider, especially a conspicuously foreign one, may justifiably feel unwelcome at any time of day, the more so after sundown. I sat in the moak, contemplating the wisdom of being there, with the evening passage of homebound traffic from town subsiding on Montfleury Road and the light fading. It's an edgy enclave, the crucible of Mahe's drugs trade. It's also home to large, hard-working families struggling to bring up children in cramped, sparsely furnished welfare flats and older, dilapidated houses bearing the scars of temporary patches that have long become permanent. By nightfall, those who've been out working or stretching their meagre rupees at the market have taken refuge indoors though fear often doesn't always end at the domestic threshold. Curtained windows radiated the silver-blue glare of old television sets, leaving only the muffled bass of reggae and the stench of carangrie hanging in the air. Swift transactions were being conducted beneath a mango tree by the main road, with little attempt at concealment, as I reached anxiously for my phone and called Claudette. Are you crazy? she said. What are you doing there? Hoping to speak to Herbert Gillor, I said, the taxi pirate guy, Robbie's friend. Oh, we see you. He's on heroin, you know, right? I know. Who isn't around here? I said. He's my only hope. You shouldn't be there on your own after dark. They might think you're snooping or a rich white tourist then rob you, or worse. Well, they'd be wrong on a few counts, I said, but I'm here now. My sister-in-law, Agnes, called me today, Claudette said, referring to Detective Sergeant Laulam, part of the investigating team. She said they'd questioned Robbie, and he told them he'd lost that leather raster bracelet months ago, maybe more. It was an intriguing insight. I saw it on one of his CD covers, I said. Sebastian showed me. That's the one, said Claudette. If Robbie's claim was true, it reinforced the possibility that the bracelet had been deliberately planted at the scene to implicate him. But why, and by whom? Does Sebastian know where you are? said Claudette. I dug my teeth into my lip, guilt welling up inside me, knowing that he would be wondering where I was, knowing too that I was playing with fire. We were interrupted by children yelling at her end. My kids are supposed to be doing homework, so I have to go, she said. You should too. She was right. There's much about Mahe that's invisible to the casual observer, and it's the way this tourism-dependent country prefers it. The popular image of tropical tranquility is real. Mahe's criminal element is limited, rarely violent, even more rarely involves tourists. 
It's mostly confined within communities like Korgat, revolving around the tragic fact that nearly one in 20 Sechewa are still enslaved, no longer to cruel plantation owners, but to heroin. Its curse touches nearly every family. In each, there's a son, a nephew, or a cousin who's an addict. Herbert Gielor was one of them. Herbert told me once, on camera, that he'd been a sportsman, a promising teenage basketball player, who'd competed at the highest level, representing his country abroad. But the dealers had exploited his weakness and naivety, waiting for him after practice at the edge of the basketball court, seducing him first with drink, then cannabis. Before long, they'd introduced him to their harder, more lucrative, and much more destructive wares. By the age of 20, Herbert was hopelessly enthralled to heroin, stabbing needles into his veins, among other addicts, in Mahe's hidden drug dens, the abandoned properties they call ghettos. Two decades of addiction had taken a heavy toll, stealing not only his sporting chances and ravaging his body, but also his mind, condemning him to a wretched daily existence of hustling to support his habit. A piteous but commonplace story. We'd met several times when, in exchange for a few rupees pushed into his dirty palm, he would supply a colourful case study of addiction, a salutary tale for Say TV's news audience. Like many addicts, he was predictable in his behaviour. One had to find him early before he'd scored the hit that staved off withdrawal and sent him slipping into narcotic oblivion in a dark doorway or on a dirty floor. When he emerged from sleep, he would dive dustbins for recyclable bottles, trading them for quick cash, taking casual labouring work when debt demanded and his strength allowed, or stealing when it didn't. From time to time, on lucid nights before the cravings returned, he sometimes persuaded his younger brother to loan him a car and picked up fares as an unlicensed taxi pirate. Robbie knew him too and had found him, he insisted, after the record launch he'd hosted that Saturday night at the museum. When the party broke up, Robbie had bought cannabis from Herbert before the pirate had driven him home. He believed Herbert could corroborate this account. As the provider of an alibi, however, an addict was unlikely to gain credit as a reliable witness, even if his testimony were true. But my hopes of supplying a more persuasive alibi of my own were now destroyed. Detective Chief Inspector Dugas had debunked the possibility that Robbie was still with his party guests as the town's clock tower struck midnight, the supposed time of the victim's deaths. I was left clinging with frail hope to Herbert's memory of events. And so I was waiting for him at Korgat, glancing at my watch and weighing up the odds, pondering the probability of assault and preparing to get away when I saw him. He was moving with purposeful haste of an addict driven by withdrawal, when he has rupees in his pocket, when the blissful sanctuary of a fix lies just ahead. I clambered out of the car and went after him. Hey, Herbert, I said, wait a minute. He hardly broke step as I caught up with him, his bloodshot eyes glancing at me. Journalist anglais, but I have somewhere I need to be. I can't talk, he said. 
I know, but it won't take a second, I said, flourishing a 100 rupee note. He scowled. You could have come with your rupees earlier, so I didn't have went spending the whole day looking for sopine to take to recycling. You need to help me, I said. Raz Robbie is in trouble. He pressed on relentlessly towards the ghetto, a wrecked building on a bend in the road overlooked by family flats. In the gloom, penniless addicts were harassing dealers with pleas and pledges of future payment, while a man who was slumped onto a plastic garden chair, one sleeve rolled up in full view at the roadside, was probing a vein by streetlight. I heard about that raster, said Herbert. Boog killed those tourists. Except I don't think he did, I said. I believe he's innocent. You think? He laughed almost contemptuously. Hope you're right, brother. You gave him a ride on Saturday night. That could prove it. Prove what? Cubidi. Prove that horny raster didn't kill those girls. He's your friend, right? You know who he is. Of course, he said. We're all his disciples. Well, if I can prove that he was with you sometime around midnight on Saturday, then the police will let him go. But right now, they think he was at Cat Noir. Herbert's pace slackened, and he thought over the possibility. I just gave the rest of her a ride, like you say. I don't remember what time. But you didn't take him across the island, did you? I said. Herbert shook his head. Took him to Karana, his mum's old place. Right, so that's nowhere near where those American sisters were staying, I said. Do you remember what time you collected him at the museum? I don't know. It was late, though, Herbert said. That's all I remember. I was taking the car back to my brother, driving by the clock tower, and I see Robbie. We'd stopped walking, many eyes in darkness watching us. Herbert was shifting his weight from foot to foot, eager to break away. From the shadows of the ghetto, a skinny and barefooted teenager in basketball shorts called out his name. Herbert raised a palm in acknowledgement. Monvini Antiku, he said, and then turned to me. I can't help you, Zonalis. I'm sorry. Is there anything else you remember, I said, before or after you picked him up at the clock tower? It could save him from a life sentence. He scratched his head and his gummy mouth fell slack, cords of saliva lacing his few rotten teeth. Well, like I say, he's Raz Robbie. I ask him for a picture. How do you mean, I said. You know, selfie picture. I got my phone and we took it before he got in the car. Just a bit of fun, right? He was cool with it. You took a selfie with Robbie, of both of you, I said. Right, brother. He looked a little sheepish. He was buzzing, I can say. My mind began racing at the explosive potential of disclosure. Have you got your phone with you now? Can you show me? I said. With a sigh, Herbert reached into his shorts and pulled out a battered Samsung. You give me those rupees, he said, his trembling fingers tapping out a passcode. 
he scrolled through the stored photos and handed me the device. The image of the two men together was lopsided and a little blurry. In it, Herbert's arm was slung over Robbie's shoulder, Robbie posing with two fingers from each hand in front of his face as if clutching invisible cigars. He wore bangles, but there was no sign of the distinctively plaited bracelet, the trademark one, pictured on an album cover that he told police was lost. Behind them, in much crisper focus, was Victoria's clock tower, its face sharply clear. The hands were displaying the time, 40 minutes after midnight. The composition and its meaning struck me with an instant rush, a high that surely no narcotic could achieve. My pulse was pounding, knowing that in my palm, finally, was incontrovertible proof of Robbie's innocence, even if the time on the clock was wrong, that it had been running fast. In my hand, I beheld a solid alibi. Sebastian was standing on the veranda, arms crossed in simmering fury, the dogs straining against their tethers with contrasting delight when I reached home. No call, nothing, he said presently, serving the dinner. Sell more kebab. But listen, I said, we finally have the proof we need. We? What is this we? This is all about you, he said, keeping his fork angrily. The clock was telling the time as 12.40, I said. That means in actuality it was ten minutes to midnight, give or take. If that was so, there was no possible way for Robbie to have been in the middle of Victoria and still leave him enough time to cross the island to Cateau Noir. It couldn't have been him who administered that cocktail of drugs to the Americans. We know he couldn't have been in two places at once. Sebastian took a chicken leg between his fingers, gnawing it without looking up. Well, I'm happy for you, he said, barbecue marinade dripping onto his chin. You can tell that to the police, and good luck with that. But for sure it doesn't change anything for us. You sneaking around like a crazy man, doing things in secret, taking stupid risks. I see you, hiding from me, doing this stuff behind my back. I laid down my cutlery gently and summoned a patient breath. We'd reached an impasse, but some sort of entente needed brokering. You knew who you married, Sebastien, I said. You married a journalist, not a poet or a parson. You've always known that my work involves meeting personal contacts, sometimes in hazardous places. It's the nature of the job, and I've never lied about it. So why hide what you're doing? creeping around at night, he said. Occasionally we all hide things from those we care about, don't we? What are you saying? Sebastian said, glowering at me. I know you've kept secrets from me, too. That's what I'm saying, I said. Secrets? What are you talking about? he said. I placed my elbows on the table and rested my chin on my thumbs, staring at my half-full plate. My appetite had evaporated as the recrimination surfaced. I found that email you received from social services, I said, the one you deleted. 
Sebastian chewed over the implicit accusation without responding. I went on, At what point were you thinking of involving me in your scheme, this pet project of yours? Didn't you think it deserved some proper discussion, my agreement? It's not a scheme, he erupted suddenly. It's nothing like your craziness. There's nothing wrong with wanting a family life. Let me remind you who you married. I work with young people. I'm a parent already to many of them. Maybe you didn't notice. I was startled by his ferocity. So you want us to adopt a child? Is that it? I said. Adoption or fostering? There's a lot of kids out there needing stable homes. Are you serious? You think they'll let two guys have one? Now who's crazy? They only just scratch prison sentences off the statute book for people like us. So we're making progress, Sebastian said. The way we always do here, slowly. And now it's our turn to make progress. Ten years we've been together. It's time. The smooth swoosh of waves rolling onto the shore filled the silence that followed as my mind rolled back to our first meeting, a chance encounter a decade earlier in a foreign airport. We'd been travelling to London to spend Christmas with our respective families, fellow airline passengers but strangers then, thrust together by a delayed stopover along with 200 others. For three days, we'd shivered beneath thin blankets like refugees in the icy Sheraton at Milan Malpensa, waiting for snowbound Heathrow to reopen. By the time the ice had melted, both literally and metaphorically, our life together had begun. It was one of those extraordinary twists of fate, that Christmas when our paths crossed. I could do it alone, said Sebastian, interrupting my reverie. But I don't want to. You need to come with me on this. I want us to make this journey together, he said. The Mahe Mysteries was created by Patrick Muirhead and Lindsay Farabo. It was written, narrated, and produced by Patrick Muirhead. Music was by Isham Rath. It was an operculum media production recorded on location in Mahe Island, Seychelles. I'm Eliza, and I need you to listen to me. Have you ever felt so much that you don't know where to put it all, and you wonder if anyone would notice if you screamed? Because you want to. Scream for the ones they've hurt, the ones they've taken. Scream for yourself. These are my words, my story from my perspective. Because I know you'll hear other versions. Because I want you to have a chance to believe mine. Or at least hear it. If you're getting this, it's already over. But if one of you listens, really listens, it won't be for nothing. <laughs>